Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast, a place for extended, in-depth discussions about the rebirth of masculinity happening around the world today. This is the final episode in my three-part series, Live from ReformCon 2022, featuring two men who need no introduction, from Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, Pastor Toby Sumter, and the renowned cultural apologist, philosopher, and Christian thinker, the Reverend Dr. Joe Boot. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, A new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. I was supposed to write and record this introduction the day of the election, but I'm glad I didn't, because it seems that things didn't go quite as planned, or as many had hoped. But here's the thing. Nothing has changed. God is either sovereign or he isn't. God either keeps his promises or he doesn't. But since God is sovereign and does keep his promises, these election outcomes, whatever they end up being, must be in accordance with his will. If you believe these elections are legitimate and the tally stands, then that is his will. If you believe these elections are illegitimate and the tally stands, then that is his will too. If in the next 24 hours, all the tallies flip upside down, and we throw a Christian nationalism parade, guess what? That will also be his will, including the parade and the final landing place of every piece of confetti. But barring that third outcome, which I still might say a silent prayer for, we as Christians must make ourselves comfortable with the fact that if the results are true, then America is much bluer and more capital D democratic than we recognize, which means we have lots of work to do. Alternatively, If the results are fraudulent and yet remain standing, we as Christians must also make ourselves comfortable with the fact that the system is more irredeemably corrupted than we can possibly imagine, from the highest offices of the government to the individual hands of the poll workers, which also means we have lots of work to do. So as you can see, nothing has changed. Christ is still on the throne. Every square inch of the earth must be claimed for God's kingdom. The dominion work goes on, with perhaps a longer, harder road than we would prefer. But it's not my will that I wish done, but my Lord's. That is sovereignty, and my God is sovereign. And all things work together for the good, for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. That is the promise, and my God keeps his promises. And the sovereign, promise-keeping God is the God I love and serve with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not because I'll see victory in my lifetime, that is not promised, but because the reward is in obedience itself. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Luke chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. And besides, I don't recall reading Paul's letter to the Give-Upians. Which brings me to my guests in the third and final episode in my Live at ReformCon series. In episode one, I shared interviews with Pastor David Reese and attorney Davis Yance. In episode two, I shared the conversation I had with Jeremiah Roberts and Andrew Sonkrant, the co-hosts of the podcast Cultish. And in this final episode, I'm thrilled to share my interviews with two men who I admire greatly for their moral, intellectual, and even spiritual courage, Pastor Toby Sumter and the Reverend Dr. Joe Boot. The purpose of ReformCon, according to the website, is, quote, planting a flag, reclaiming culture. And the subtitle of the conference is, by this standard, which the site describes as, quote, a rallying cry for Christians to live according to God's word, to put on the whole armor of God, and to plant a flag in the ground for the gospel in every area of life and culture. In other words, all of Christ for all of life, 
and Pastor Toby and Dr. Boot are two of the boldest men to carry and plant that flag. As you probably know, Toby Sumter hails from Moscow, Idaho, where he's a pastor, author, husband, father, blogger, public speaker, and co-host of the popular podcast Cross Politic, which hosts the annual Fight Laugh Feast conference, which just concluded last month with over a thousand attendees. The Reverend Dr. Joe Boot hails from Great Britain and spent many years in Canada. He's the founder of the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and the founding pastor of the Westminster Chapel in Toronto. He's the author of several books, including the classic Mission of God, as well as Ruler of Kings, which is sitting on my bookshelf. And Dr. Boot has worked in the fields of Christian apologetics, worldview education, and church leadership for over 20 years on both sides of the Atlantic. And on a personal note, Dr. Boot's lectures on YouTube have been instrumental to me in my own Christian journey, helping me to understand how the Christian worldview contrasts with the pagan, pantheistic, New Age world I spent many years in. These men were two of the biggest draws of the conference, so of course it was a great honor to speak with both of them. In my conversation with Pastor Toby, we discussed the politics of believing in six-day creation, the secular American religion, Calvinism's influence on the American Revolution, how Christians need to be building much more than culture, the troubling eugenic details of Dave Rubin's recent announcement, and Christians being duped with the offer of power. And Dr. Boot and I discussed how Aristotle impacted Christianity through Thomas Aquinas, nature and grace as an artificial distinction, how inflating church and state paradoxically leads to secularization, the meaning of Christ's lordship over all spheres of life, and finally, the eschatology of hope for law, politics, medicine, and even sports. And allow me just to say, Dr. Boot is a hero of mine, so I hope he'll forgive me for my nerves in slightly mispronouncing his name at the opening. As always, thank you to all my listeners for coming along with me on this series. Thanks also to Pastor David Reese, Davis Yance, Jeremiah and Andrew from Cultish, my good friends Sean O'Brien and Brandon Tigret for help with setup and teardown of the Renaissance of Men's Smoking Lounge, and Amber Aldrich for the introduction to Davis Yance. Thanks also to Ryan Smith for his unending brotherhood and support, and all the visitors to my booth who blessed me with their stories and their questions. Huge thanks as well to Christine Schwann and the entire staff at ReformCon, Pastors Jeff, Luke, and Zach, and finally, everyone at Apologia Church for being the powerful and inspiring community of faith that they are. And of course, last but not least, thank you to my honored guests in this episode, who blessed me with their precious time on a very busy weekend. So it gives me great pleasure to conclude my three-part interview series live at ReformCon with Pastor Toby Sumter and the Reverend Dr. Joe Boot. Pastor Toby, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast at ReformCon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So how did Fight, Laugh, Feast go in Knoxville? I wanted to be there. It looked like Uh, it was amazing. uh, It was it was amazing. It was wonderful. We had um, a, a massive crowd of very enthusiastic people, lots of families, lots of kids, uh, which I always love. Um, the talks went great. Uh, the singing was good. Um, just all around, uh, I would describe it as a roaring success. Mm. And um, we announced at the conference that next year's Fight, Laugh, Feast will be at the Ark Encounter yeah. in Kentucky. Um, we'll be talking about the politics of six-day creation. Um, basically how your, your view, your reading of the early chapters of Genesis, um, impact your politics, mm-hmm. um, that we can't, we, we, we should not think that that's, uh, unrelated. So looking forward to that. We're hoping to pack that place out. So how, how does the reading of the early chapters of Genesis, uh, affect your politics? This yeah. is, I'm really curious about this because uh, I've heard, you know, I've heard Vody talk about this as yeah, well. Yeah. You know, do you believe in seven-day creation? Like, no, I believe in six. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say it's, it begins with sort of the macro issue, which is the reliability of God's word. So the reliability of God's word and taking it seriously for all of life begins when you open the first pages of, right. of, the, of Genesis. And if it's, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, and he's, God said, let there be light. And there was light and there was morning and evening the first day, mm-hmm. um, you're immediately, you're, you're either submitting to God's word and you're saying, um, uh, it is telling me about the world and I am in submission to it, um, or else you come to scripture with um, a certain amount of pride and arrogance and hubris and you say, actually, 
well, this is poetry. We know this is not really talking about God creating the heavens and the earth because, you know, uh, the geological record says this or because the fossil record says this or because scientists say that the earth is, you know, the universe is billions of years old um, or whatever, the Big Bang, all right. these things. And even if you try to semi-Christianize it and say, well, this is sort of, you know, a, a biblical way of saying that God made the Big Bang and then God, you know, sort of theistic evolution, you know, kind of directed evolution over the course of millennia and billions of years. And this day, you know, day represents an eon or an era or whatever. Um, you are still doing violence to the text. Wow. And if you begin there by doing violence to the creation text, um, you know, denying, you know, as some Christians even do denying a historical Adam. Um, right. You know, that, that, that Adam and just sort of represents the, uh, the human race evolving, becoming, you know, uh, you know, some, you know, hominib or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and then finally God, you know, breathed his spirit into one of them. Right. And, and, right. You right. know, this kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, but you, you're doing violence to the text. There's nothing about them in the text. Um, you're also, um, and so the, the macro issue is if you can do it there, mm-hmm. then you can do it anywhere. Right. And you, and you can't say, Oh no, 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 no. You know, it's, you know, just, just, People try to say, well, it's a different genre, but it's not. It's a historical genre. Um, is it poetic? Sure, but it's also telling historic fact. And the rest of the Bible assumes it's telling historic fact. Um, the law says that, you know, God created, you know, you're to rest on the seventh day because God created the heavens and the earth in six days. So you rest. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the Sabbath is built on the historicity of the six days of creation. Jesus in the gospel says that God made them male and female in the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to say God made them male and female after billions and billions of years <laughs> yes. and get the beginning out of that. Yeah. Um, so, um, but if you, if you don't, if you do, if you're willing to do violence to the first chapter of Genesis, you're willing to do violence, at least in principle to any chapter, which gets us to the point of, you know, if all of God's word applies to all of life mm-hmm. and particularly we're going to be talking about the politics of six day creation, then the, then how God's word applies to the public square, to judicial and civil justice. Well, if you start messing with Genesis I think downstream messes with everything. And you basically have set yourself up and man up to reinterpret God's word as it suits us. And this is how you end up with um, so-called Christians, like, for example, Francis Collins, um, who has been the director of the uh, National uh, Institute of Health, NIH, for the last number of years, celebrated in Christianity Today and other major Christian um, magazines as as a convert later in life. A lot of people celebrated him as a kind of a new C.S. Lewis type character. Really? Um, And yet he is the director of the NIH, which directed the suppression of any other narratives um, related to COVID. Um, And encouraged pastors to sign a form promising to wear masks, promising to get vaccinated and urging their, um, their churches and their neighbors to, to love their neighbors by submitting to the government dictates. Right. That was led by an evangelical Christian, a a professing evangelical Christian. He also started a program at the NIH directly under his care, um, uh, um, doing research on transgender surgeries. But you see, if, if you can do violence to Genesis one, then you, you, if you can mutilate Genesis one, then you can mutilate a teenage girl. Right. Um, and say, um, I'm doing exegesis, uh, you know, you, and, and, you know, say, I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm making the world a better place because what you're doing is you're not actually submitting to God's word and allowing God's norms to, um, to dictate to you rather what you're doing is you're going, um, you're going to God's word and you are, um, asserting authority over it. You're saying, I have authority to say, well, no, when it says God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, what it actually means is there was a big bang and, you know, and we evolved over billions and billions of years. Well, if you can do that to Genesis one, then you can give um, little kids hormone therapy. Right. Um, It's all connected. Um, So there's maybe more than you wanted, but no, that's, that's great. I mean, I'm wondering, 
if it's kind of a symptom of a religious war, because you're looking at the religion of Christianity with its narrative about creation and the world and men and women. And then you have this religion of atheistic materialism, secularism, scientism, and that's their narrative. Absolutely. And you can't actually square these two narratives. They don't no. fit together as much as we may want them to. Some, some people may want right. them to. That's absolutely right. They're, all of life is religious. There's no neutrality. Um, and even the atheists, the secularists, the materialists, that's their religion. And, and, and that, for, you know, for example, people say, you know, you can't teach religion in, in public schools or you can't teach, you know, you can't appeal to religion in the public square. Well, it's just false. The, by buying that lie, Christians for the longest time basically allowed the secular materialists to pretend they weren't a religion. Right. But they absolutely are a religion. We have an established religion in the United States. It's secular materialism. Yes. Um, and so Christians should stop um, buying that and going along with it and simply say, no, um, everyone brings their faith to the public square. Mm -hmm. Everybody brings their faith. The question is which faith? Mm -hmm. um, absolutely. When, when did it, do you think it happened that secularism became a religion undercover? Like when, when no. did that switch actually happen? No. Well, I think it was, it's, it's happened, um, I think probably for ages, right. but I think the switch that really matters to us is when it sort of became dominant. Right. So I think, I think it was a growing force. Um, I, I think going back to even people like um, Thomas Jefferson, um, who sort of had to be an undercover um, you know, he was kind of a deist, yeah. but even he, you know, would, would nod respectfully to full blown Trinitarian Christianity. Sure. He was respectful of it. And in public would frequently still refer to Christ the Bible and Christian norms, yeah. though we know that he had a sub biblical understanding, but I would describe him as someone who's sort of like a closet secularist, like a closet, yeah. you know, deism is secular. Washington too, kind of. Well, no, George Washington was actually a very devout believer. Was he really? Yeah. Oh, okay. He was a, he was a devout Episcopalian um, who um, left in his will a, a significant um, portion of his um, uh, estate uh, to a Presbyterian, a, a biblical Presbyterian college. Oh, wow. Um, so George Washington, I believe was a, I mean, sur surely a fallible man and didn't get yeah. everything right, but was a devout believing Christian. Wow. Um, it's something like, uh, like 90, um, of the, um, it, the, it was only like three of the signers of the declaration of independence that were, um, sketchy mm -hmm. on their faith. The vast majority of them were Orthodox Bible believing Christians. Right. Um, but in order to function in that in that time, you you still had to nod to Christianity. So even when you were, you know, you had doubts in your heart, or you wrote letters to people say, "I don't know about the deity of Christ." In public, you had to be a Christian. Right. Um, there was no other choice. Yeah. But I would say so. It, it's creeping back. I would I, I would trace it back to the Enlightenment rationalism, um, and that and Enlightenment rationalism um, began with a. Um, it, it was the. Um, most of the, um, some of them were full-blown atheists from jump, but lots of them knew that would never fly and or had some kind of sense like, well, you got to have something that starts all this. Mm -hmm. You have to have a God somewhere back there. Um, but they were basically embarrassed of the Bible, embarrassed of miracles, embarrassed of the virgin birth, embarrassed of the resurrection of Jesus, embarrassed of six-day creation. Right. And so I would say that's the start of it though, is where you, it starts as sort of deism. There's some kind of God back there somewhere that started the Big Bang or whatever, um, but uh, but is basically going back through the Bible and saying um, a whole lot of this is sort of poetry, is mythology, um, it's it's symbolic. You know, the 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 resurrection is symbolic for how you feel. You know, after you know whatever you have an experience with God, right? Um, rather than no, it's a historical fact. A dead man walked out of the grave um, and changed the course of human history. Um, but I would say um, Enlightenment uh, rationalism is where it begins, and then that begins to grow throughout the 19th century in America. You have more and more um, of um, Orthodox believers. Um, well, I think you had a, we lost a lot of them in the war between the states um, on both sides. Yep. I think you end up with um, a, um, a, a church that is um, massively, uh, particularly the Reformed churches, um, were the ones I think that really dropped the ball. A bunch of them um, uh, cratered on a number of things, caved on a number of things, beginning with creation um, okay. early on in the 20th century. Um, 
and saying that um, it wasn't that important. Um, if you go back to Machen, uh, Jay Gresham Machen wrote a great book called Christianity and Liberalism in the 1920s. And mm-hmm. the 1920s, he's part of the mainline Presbyterian church. When I'm Presbyterian, you know, and so whenever yeah. I introduce myself as Presbyterian, I'm say the kind that believes the Bible, <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, uh, I'm the kind of Presbyterian that we don't fly the rainbow flags, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. The lowercase o orthodox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, but he's back in 1920 saying, and he got defrocked by the mainline Presbyterian church, which means they... Yeah. They took his ordination away, and they I think they might have even excommunicated him, mm-hmm. which was a badge of honor for him, um, because <laughs> basically he said that um, liberalism was beginning to grow like a cancer in the pre- mainline Presbyterian church, and they were already beginning to say, it's not a big deal if you deny um, six-day creation. It's not a big deal if you deny um, miracles, the virgin birth, the um, vicarious substitutionary atonement of Christ, the resurrection— uh, the physical bodily return of Jesus. And um, and so he began make, throwing a fit in the 1920s in the mainline Presbyterian church, in the 1920s. Wow, okay. And said he said, these are fundamentally two different religions. And I believe liberalism in the Presbyterian church in the 1920s was that. Like what, that, it's yeah. that secular religion. It's mm-hmm. sort of a slightly baptized secularism Mm -hmm. it's the secular you know it's the secular religion of joe biden right right. you know um it's it's a it doesn't you know it can give lip service to a god we don't know what god but some god yeah yeah um and at the same time functionally is atheistic materialistic and secular but i think that liberalism that machin saw in the 1920s has become the established religion of the united states yep um it can give lip service to traditional religion, but doesn't believe it at all. Um, denies supernaturalism, denies uh, the Trinity, denies the incarnation. That's what captured. That's what's captured America. Um, so I think that's where it began becoming mainstream. It became mainstream in the church first, mm-hmm. and the church discipled our nation. Got it. And it discipled it in heresy. And so we're 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 an apostate nation now. We're a heretical nation uh, because we were discipled by liberalism. That began in the church. That makes a lot of sense because there are a lot of musicians and athletes you know, who talk about Jesus and stuff like that. Yeah. But like, what is their faith actually right. about? Right. right? Do they actually get into sin, redemption, you know, right. resurrection? Do they talk about it? No, they talk about Jesus in some right. kind of vague, bland kind of way. And so you're saying it started back then, right? Yeah, hundred would, years ago. Yeah, I would say yeah. It, um, it, it was. It's been creeping in, and I think it has fundamentally been a rejection of. Um, I think it goes back to in the 19th century. I think. Calvinists in particular um, uh, tried to soften the sharp edges of the sovereignty of God, um, doctrines of heaven and hell. Um, and, um, and it was, there's a, there's a great book called The Feminization of American Culture by mm-hmm. Ann Douglas, um, which I can't recommend enough. I'm not sure if Ann Douglas is even a believer of any stripe, but she tells the unvarnished truth about the feminization of American culture, um, which is a slightly different thing, but I think your podcast has to do with men, doesn't yes, it? Yeah, so a little I, bit. So I worked that in there. Um, <laughs> Thank you. So, um, but, but she says basically, um, so the, the war for independence in our country was called the Presbyterian revolt. Really? It, by, At by the time. The, by the British King. So, oh. so King George said that, um, that the American revolution was a Presbyterian revolt. Um, wow. Uh, almost, I think all but one of the um, generals or lieutenants at the, um, at the, at the, um, surrender at Yorktown, mm-hmm. um, uh, in, uh, 1781 were all Presbyterian elders. Uh, oh. um, the, um, the, uh, so, um, it is, um, it, it was, it is arguable and there's, you can Google this and find the research. I don't have all of the details at, at, at my, my fingertips, but, um, it is the um, the Presbyterian um, the Presbyterians had a, a continental um, like uh, synod like they all met together yeah. the year before so in 1775 and they um, passed an ordinance in 1775 um, um, commending um, independence for the colonies in 1775 mm-hmm. and then it was 1776 when the Declaration of Independence was signed. So it was Presbyterian Things pastors. you don't learn in history. Yeah. Um, the other, the other, uh, one other reference to this is that the, um, 
that the uh, the the somebody the guys in Parliament, in British Parliament, would derisively refer to the American um, regiments as the Black Robe Regiment. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they were talking about is Presbyterian pastors, because lots of Presbyterian pastors preached in black robes in the colonies. Wow. They weren't literally fighting, right, right, but right, they, right. They, yeah. they were preaching freedom in Christ and freedom from tyranny. Mm-hmm. And so it's it was a robust Calvinistic reformed Presbyterianism that drove um, the war for independence and the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And, and then what happened, and there, and there was seeds of apostasy, seeds of liberalism there already, um, and, and they, they started uh, getting more influence over the, over the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And, but during that time, uh, Ann Douglas in Feminization of American Culture describes how a number of um, Christians in those same churches began saying, you know what, this is a little bit harsh. This is a little bit mean. This is a little bit unloving, and we want pastors who are not so well. And literally, they would say manly. Yeah, it's actually where the um, the the the, the re- referring to a pastor or, or the ministry as the third sex came from. Mm-hmm. It was during these yep, these yep, times yep, where yep. they would refer to pastors as as the third sex. Yeah, you know where did where did our, our sexual confusion come from? Well, at least in part, it came uh. from the church saying we don't want our ministers to be manly men. We don't want them to be masculine men. And particularly what we, what was meant by that is, is not being, it was not like having a gigantic beard or, or, um, you know, spitting and chewing tobacco or something like that. Right, right, right. Fundamentally, what was meant by that was the masculinity of Calvinism, mm-hmm. the masculinity of serving a sovereign God who is sovereign over every square inch of the universe, who is sovereign over salvation and is Lord and King of all. That's, that's fundamentally what was meant by that sort of, what do we mean? You know, I know sometimes people refer to a muscular Christianity yeah, in, in, in the like 20th and, century. Yeah. You know, and, and they mean, I don't know, sort of you know, cussing pastors or I don't know what they mean exactly, but you know, yeah, it was a movement in the early 20th century. Yeah. Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. yeah. I don't know about the cussing yeah, part. Yeah. 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 But I would say fundamentally it's, it's, uh, it's Calvinism, you know, and I think, right. I think it makes a certain kind of man who is bold and courageous and not effeminate. Um, but, uh, but I think that's what happened in the 19th century was that there, that, that there was a concentrated effort to say, let's soften the edges. Um, let's, let's soften this. Calvinism was more and more sort of like, well, that, you can believe that if you want. Um, and then, and <laughs> Never then, a good sign. And then again, by the time you get up to Machen in the, in the 1920s, he's seeing it full blown in the Presbyterian church. Um, and then I think you get all the way down to the present, uh, the, the, the heirs of, of all of that, uh, modern evangelicalism, um, you know, I think they focused heavily on just saving souls, just getting people in, getting them to make a confession, just getting them to get born again with very little emphasis on discipleship, right? With very little emphasis on how to be a man of God, how to be a woman of God, um, what it means to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, getting married, raising a family, starting businesses and living to the glory of God in every area of life. Um, but all I think that's that all goes together. Do you think that American Christians? Okay, two questions. Do you think American Christians are really ready to go there and are really ready to start thinking seriously about six day creation? And um, either way, how do we get more of them courageous enough to be able to be like, yeah, I yeah. believe that because the shaming around stuff like that is it's so intense. Yeah, I think more are ready than we think. Okay, I. I think I think part of it is being sped up by the insanity of liberals. Right. So, Can't deny that anymore. So the the liberals who you know want to give hormone, um, you know, destroying chemicals to little boys and girls, and are chopping up yeah. babies in their mothers' wombs. Yeah. I mean, just the 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 COVID lockdowns, the shutdowns, the mask mandates, the vaccine mandates. There is an there is a popular and a populist uprising at work. And I think what it has done successfully is completely shake the confidence of the common people in uh, any elites at all. Right. So what has happened for a long time, the reason why people were afraid to speak up was because they're, they're elites. So, you know, the gospel coalition types who will write an article that says, well, some believers believe in six-day creation, other believers believe in day-age theories, and some believers believe in the framework hypothesis, and some believers believe in theistic evolution, you know, here are the pros and cons. 
Right. I mean, like, like that's, I'm guessing what you would get, or you'd get a, you know, one view and then the other view. That's what you get in gospel coalition. I, I'm prove me wrong. I'd love to be wrong. I'm pretty <laughs> sure though, that they've not had anybody fact check. Yeah. Fact check me. I'd be, I'd be, lo- I'd love to be wrong to find out that the gospel coalition has clearly said, if you believe in theistic evolution, if you believe in something other than day age, uh, if you believe in something other than six day creation, um, you are on a dangerous slippery slope to liberalism and apostasy. It's not going to happen. I'm sure it hasn't happened, but that's what they've gotten. But then it's the same people who say now, whether or not the government can order your churches down and whether or not you need to get the vax or the masks, well, who's to say, right? This is kind of a conscience issue. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, love your neighbor probably means you probably better do it. Mm -hmm. No, (laughs) we need, I, I think the popular level American evangelical has said is like enough is enough, right? No. Um, you know, and, and the hypocrisy is just, is just blatant. Like the lies, the media lies, the, the, the propaganda. And so, so many people are saying they've been lying to us all these years. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and, and I think it was growing with abortion. I think a lot of people have seen it with abortion. Like, no, this is not healthcare. It's murdering babies. Yeah. This is not helping mothers. It's scarring mothers. It's ruining people's lives. It's not helping. I think that was growing, but now with the tranny stuff, with the pride parades, with the drag queen story hours, uh, and with COVID and healthcare fascism, which is what I would call it. Um, it, the, the, I think there's a popular level like revolt going on, which is sometimes very confused. I'm not saying it's, yeah, it's yeah. necessarily, um, uh, you know, biblically orthodox, <laughs> but I would say it's very ripe for, I think you could go to a Trump rally. I, I would be willing to go to a Trump rally, for example, and preach the importance of six-day creation, and I'm pretty sure I would get a pretty warm welcome. Yeah, uh, and I and I would um, because I think they know that the same the same people trying to shove uh, climate alarmism down our throats are the same people who predicted that millions and millions of people would die if you didn't wear a mask. Right, and, and they're the same people who have told us that the world is billions of years old. Yeah, like they are bad with numbers. <laughs> like, like, yeah, and, yeah, and I think, and I think a lot of 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 American, you know, the 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 normal sort of blue collar American worker, American evangelical said these people have been lying to us, and I can't trust anything. And so, you know what? I'm willing to reconsider that maybe maybe the world really was created in six days, and it's only about six thousand years old mm-hmm. because everything else they told me was a lie, right? Um, and um, and and that and it's it's not working out. Like, you know, li- listening to the the experts is only created confusion, slavery, tyranny, death. Um, and I, so I think there's a lot of people willing to, to look. I, I'm curious. I, I, I've, this is a, a Venn diagram that I, I don't know what it actually looks like, but my thesis is that if you did a poll of American evangelical Christians, gospel, you know, yeah. gospel-believing Christians, Bible-believing Christians, and you said, do you believe in a literal six-day creation? And did you support mask mandates and shutdowns? <laughs> I I bet you, I bet you, I put money on yeah, it. Yeah, um, that um, the more it is far more likely that if you believed in six day creation, you did not go along with the mask mandates and the vax mandates and the and the shutdowns, um, because I think it, it. You're right. It, there's so much pressure the same kind of pressure that says you don't really believe in six day creation. You don't really believe in a literal flood with a giraffe with his head sticking out of the ark. <laughs> it's the same pressure on you that says mask up, love your neighbor yes. and get vaccinated. Yes. Don't you think you should love your neighbor? It's the same pressure. And I, th- I think that's why it's a, it's a litmus test in, a, in the best possible way that says, are we going to submit to God's word? If, if you're willing to submit to God's word on creation and a, and a flood, um, then you're willing to submit to God's word on his law. You're willing to submit to God's word on, on miracles. You're willing to submit to God's word on a vicarious substitutionary atonement, a resurrection, a little return of Christ, um, heaven and hell. And, um, and, and that's the kind of backbone you need and clarity of thinking to say, you know what? Actually, God says that it's a husband's job to care for his wife and his kids, not the government's, not the church's. And it's the church's job to, to run worship and decide whether we're going to worship or not, not the states. And state, your job is just to punish criminals. That's it. And criminals as defined by the word of God, period, full stop. You're not allowed to do anything else. No healthcare, no education, no 
arts, no space exploration, nothing. <laughs> Your yeah. job is to punish criminals. Um, it's we if we want if we want to see the lordship of Christ honored in those spheres, in those governments, those assignments that God has given to those particular governments. Well, then we have to begin at the very beginning. We have to begin with God's word and submit to it. And so the the, the choice of the Ark encounter. Yes. It's sort of is going to reinforce all of this yes. about, about yeah. a year from now. Like, what do you have, what do you have planned for that whole experience? Man, um, we're so excited. I mean, have you been there? The, I haven't. The, no. I, this I went two weeks ago um, uh, in preparation for confirming that we were going to do it. There, yeah, yeah. we um, we got a, a whirlwind tour of of the ark. It is amazing. Um, the you know Ken Ham had this vision um, to build a life size replica of of the ark. It is massive. It is, um, it is spectacular. It is impressive. They have, I think, a one point. I think you said one point three or one point four million people come a year. Oh wow, um, that's significant. They believe that about thirty percent of them are not Christians, and um, and the whole thing is this massive gospel presentation. It's a massive like why God's word can be trusted, and why that matters. Um, we came away thinking, you know what, not only is just creationism and, you know, believing the Bible important, what Ken Ham has done with the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum, which is just nearby there, um, I think is a model for Christians to think big. Christians don't think big enough. I think he raised a hundred or, I don't remember, I think it was a hundred million dollars or something like that to build that thing. Yeah. Um, that's um, impressive. Yeah. Um, why are I mean, we Christians should be building the destinations. Yes. Right. Like whatever it is that you do, like you should be building the store, the, the industry, the company. I mean, why, why is it that Christians don't run all the best theme parks in the world? Mm -hmm. Like, why do they not come to us to have family fun? Instead, we go to Disney, mm -hmm. which is discipling us in very unfamily friendly fun, even though yeah. it's called family friendly yeah you know, right family friendly drag shows yes like like what like we should be the ones um building those those places so i think the ark encounter is also impressive for that so we've got um we're, we're it looks like i've seen a rough draft of the schedule don't hold me to this yet sure. it's 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 in in progress but it looks like we're adding a day to the conference just so that we can make time for tours right so we don't want to just have a conference and then, you know, you like on your break, run over really fast and run back. We, we actually want people to bring their families um, and have time to do it. It's, it's made for a family experience. There's restaurants right on site for all the meals. There's a massive playground for kids, a lot of outdoor area um, to, to eat, picnic and hang out. There's a massive um, uh, conference center where we can meet and have the actual talks, a gift center, and then the ark itself. And then, a, and there's a hotel that's being finished this spring. That's right next to the premises. Oh, perfect. Um, and then there are a few others just up the road. And the Creation Museum is actually about 30 or 40 minutes away, closer to Cincinnati. Um, and this just happened. They, they originally wanted to build the Ark Encounter on the Creation Museum property, but it just wasn't big enough. Right. So they had to find property for it. So we want to leave room for people to also make a trek up there and you can buy ticket packages where you can do both of them within a few days or have like a weekend pass to both um, places. Um, but we're planning to have like previous years, um, a, uh, a, a beer in Psalms right off of campus. We can't do that on campus. Um, but our, our usual kickoff with beer and Psalms, um, the, the night before, um, uh, with, uh, I think seven or eight talks from, um, uh, all of the, uh, the, the, the main speakers you've come to expect at Fight, Laugh, Feast. I know um, we have Ken Ham confirmed. Oh, wow. So he will be speaking at the conference for sure, uh, giving one talk. Um, we also have Dr. Gordon Wilson from New St. Andrews College, who's a biologist. He's Doug Wilson's brother. He's, oh. he's the host of the documentary Riot and the Dance, hey. which if you and your audience haven't seen, Riot and the Dance is like, is, is us, is, is, it's from Canon Press. Mm -hmm. in Moscow. It's a, there's two of them out now and they're working on a third. These are documentaries made um, from an explicitly creationist perspective um, that are intended to be, you know, basically let's take National Geographic back for Jesus. <laughs> yes. 
um, but more fun, more interesting because yeah. we believe that the world is, you know, God's playground. Right. Um, so there's been a, there's a riot in the dance um, that was the, the very first one. I don't remember exactly what the theme was, but the second theme was um, water. Uh-huh. And then the one that's coming out is Africa. Um, oh, wow. And I, I don't know if that'll be out next fall um, uh, yet or not. But anyways, uh, that's what we got planned. Cool. Do you have time for one more question? Sure. On cross-politic, and I've been so inspired by this, you guys have been so outspoken on the Dave Rubin issue. Yeah. I've been really, really impressed. You had you had a guest speaker or maybe like a half-hour presentation, uh, one of the instructors from New St. Andrews. You know, I, I wish I could remember his name. Um, you guys didn't interview him. He just he just gave a presentation about all the different aspects of that. Just talk a little bit about what that's been like for you because you've had to be so out front on this. And you've shown me things about it that I didn't realize. Like, I didn't realize what oh, an enormous... Uh, yes, Jeff Schaefer. That's, that's what it, you're thinking that's of. It. Yeah, yes. I've shared that so many times. Like, you guys got to listen to this. Yeah, it was that was an amazing breakdown. He yeah. is a former ADF, Alliance for Defending Freedom okay. um, attorney who's now on staff at New St. Andrews College. Um, we've just started a law and policy institute at New St. Andrews College where, so the idea is that students at New St. Andrews College can begin taking some electives from Jeff Schaefer, trained oh, wow. attorney, um, particularly in the area of religious freedom and free speech. They, you know, ADF, Alliance for Defending Freedom, defends free speech, you know, Christian things. Um, this guy is so, such a gift, Jeff Schaefer. Yeah, brilliant. Um, but yeah, um, he he has been a very, very big help and help and just, Unpacking this, I think the bottom line is that, frankly, um, we think I, I have thought relatively high of the Daily Wire and yeah. the Blaze. I've been thankful for a lot of their work. Matt Walsh is doing some great stuff with What yeah. Is a Woman, and um, you know, and just you know, really um, hitting some great things. Matt yeah. Walsh also did this um, this thing with uh, Vanderbilt University. I saw and, that, and is you know been getting, I mean, at the very least, he's getting a bunch of hospitals that have been doing tranny surgeries on kids to pull the stuff off their website. Now, whether or not they're, <laughs> they're going to stop doing it, but it, Christians need to understand you have to, you, that's how it begins. Back to Thomas Jefferson, not being willing to say out loud what he actually believed. Yeah. That's, that's how you know you're living in a more Christian society is that immorality ha- is suppressed. It doesn't mean sin's gone. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean immorality has gone, but now they have to do it in secret. Yeah. And, and, you know, now you still we don't want to let that proliferate, but it's good for it to be suppressed. Yeah. Well, when uh, when Jordan Peterson was joined forces with Daily Wire, and the very first interview he does is with Dave Rubin talking about um, how Dave Rubin is with his so-called partner. Um, uh, you know, is looked through a catalog and selected eggs and um, and purchased his, them. His sister was going to incubate. Yeah, I know. I like, I mean, yeah, what yeah, is this sort of incestuous thing? thing and but this, this is called eugenics. Yeah. And it's what Margaret Sanger was into in order to eliminate certain races. Um it's where abortion came from, or where, where um pro- proliferation of the pill came from. Yeah. The notion was to to eugenics means good genes. It's it goes back to Francis Collins and a and an arrogance about creation. Rather than submitting to God and what he gives and what he does. And using science only very humbly to, in, in, in small ways, correct effects of the fall. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't, yeah. have, mind, I don't have mind doing surgery on cancer and trying to get the cancer For to go. Sure. But that's a very different thing from giving a, a, a teenage girl a double mastectomy. Yeah. That's, that's, there's a difference between um, re, you know, reforming according to what God has given and trying to bring healing and deforming right. and mutilating. Well, what Dave Rubin is talking about is selecting eggs based on feature, physical features, what kind of genes he wants, then renting wombs from, for women, treating women both by their eggs and their wombs as objects. And their be, breast milk. To, yeah, and their breast milk to be used, objects to be used, biological factories, rather than women made in the image of God. Um, I thought it was just this massive, I, I think Jordan Peterson kind of has a little bit of apparent like tension as he's talking about it, but the whole thing was framed as well. I guess this is kind of reasonable. Yeah. Um, and even though maybe it's not the norm, it's an option. And I don't think that, and I think conservatives have to see this for what it is. You cannot say this. And then, and then ultimately downstream that at the same time, while Matt Walsh is throwing a fit about the trend surgeries, um, they're not um, 
they're not seeing the connection. Right. They're, you're, you're mutilating the natural family. You're saying, I can bring these children into the world without a mother. I cut their mothers off. Yep. I paid them off, basically, like hookers, only you didn't use their bodies in the same way. But that's all you did. You used, you used their eggs, used their wombs, used their breast milk. You paid them off. And now you're going to raise these two children without their mothers. On purpose, you are deforming the natural family. You are, you are mutilating the natural family. You cannot do that and then say, if a, if a little girl really believes she's a boy um, inside, that she can't have her body, you know, you can't affirm that gender that she feels. Right. Right. We're, we're being asked to affirm Dave Rubin's um, gender confusion. Um, and I think a bunch of conservatives are being duped by it. I think they're being paid off by it because Dave Rubin is one of the richest conservatives, I believe, in the country. Um, he owns the blaze or a big portion of it. Um, and I think, um, I think there's a bunch of homosexual money behind a bunch of the conservative stuff. And people are unwilling to call it out and say, look, I don't have a problem if a, if a, uh, in, in sort of co-belligerency, uh, a homosexual wants to give to something, but he should not be given the microphone and he should not be given the steering wheel. It's, immor it's immoral, it's shameful, and it's an abomination. Now, if you want to give to a cause that is going to say that openly, feel free, but you may not lead this because homosexuality is not conservative at all. And unfortunately, the Republican Party is already inundated with homosexuality. Um, and so that's why it's such a big deal. And that's why we've been hitting it so hard. Ultimately, those roads, they diverge. Right. Right. That's right. Yeah, we, maybe we can travel together a little bit down the right. road, but there will come a right. point where it's like right. there are going to be some pretty fundamental differences of worldview. Right. That's right. And I, I think to the eugenics point, it's like you can say on one hand that like, okay, maybe selecting eggs and sperm or whatever isn't that big of a deal. But when he said, you know, if the, if the baby had Down syndrome or something, he'd just abort it. Yeah. That just is kind of like the, the icing on the whole right. thing, the cherry on top. Like, yeah. no, this is actual eugenics, you know, to, right. to select and then to deselect other things as right. well. Like, that's just the entire process. Yeah. And I think Christians have been behind the eight ball on this, too, because, of course, you have the, the, the you know, the sad stories of, of, you know, some couple, Christian couple that can't have kids. And then they right. think, well, can we do in vitro fertilization? And, well, I would say they're mostly no. And the, right. and the reason why is because you, you, it's messing with stuff that we're, we're, we're mixing up immortal souls in a test tube. Right. And, and disrespectful. And yeah. I think it's, I think, I think we don't, and I think you say, but they can't have kids. They really want to have kids. Well, guess what? Sometimes God doesn't give kids. And this goes back to submitting to God. Are you going to submit to Tough. God and his sovereignty? Or are you going to take matters into your own hands and say, well, if we lose a few, that's okay. Um, I just think people don't understand. And then frequently you end up with, you know, in, in, in vitro fertilization, you end up with like 10 fertilized eggs yeah. or 15 or more. And the, um, put them in a freezer. Yeah. What do you do with them? You flush them down the toilet. Do you, do you, um, do you put them in a freezer? Um, now I, I know that maybe some have been very, very careful and said, well, whatever comes, we're going to put all of them in, right. and, you know, and we're going to, and, and I appreciate that, but I still think it's like, you're playing with immortal souls in a test tube. Yeah. Fertilized we're, egg. We're, we're, it's a human life. We're, Congratulations. We're you not, made a human life. Yeah. We're not God. And I, and so I think Christians have been duped by the offer of power. I agree. And I think we need to, we need to go back to first, you know, back to basics and say, no, no, no. God is the author of life. And there's only so much that we ought to reasonably do um, to seek to bring life into the world. And there are, should be really clear, bright lines where we say, you know what? No, that's, I'm not going there because that's bringing life into the world in a way that um, we don't know what we're doing with that. Yep. And, it's, and, and the chances are good that we're beginning to play God. And uh, again, that's, that's a very dangerous place to be. Well, and Apologia does the end abortion now ministry, saving thousands of babies. Right. Like those are babies that might need to be adopted. Right. Like what an act of service. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah, the, the, the need for adoption, foster care, or yeah. just being a Good faith, a faithful couple in a, in a church where there are lots of kids, even if the Lord hasn't given you children, um, you can be fruitful by serving the families around you, by loving the children around you, uh, by being an uncle and an aunt, uh, of, of, you know, covenantally and or, you know, by even really um, faithfully, um, that's an honorable high calling. And the promises of God for you receiving that joyfully are glorious. 
and you ought not think you're missing out. You're you're having a second rate um, existence. Amen to that. Yeah. So where would you like to send people today to check out more about what's going on with with you and uh, well, Fight Laugh Feast and everything? Yeah. Um, yeah. FightLaughFeast.com, FLFnetwork.com, um, CrossPolitik.com. Uh, of course, uh, I've, my blog is tobyjsumter.com. Um, I'm pastor at uh, King's Cross Church in Moscow. You can find our website, kingscrossmoscow.com. Um, I also have sermons up at the Christ Church website and Canon Press. Thank you so much, Toby. Yeah. So good to see you. Thank you. Good to see you too, man. Dr. Joe Boat, thank you for joining me at the ReformCon Renaissance of Men podcast. That's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So I checked out your article on scholasticism. Sure. And this is fascinating to me because I've been observing the trend towards Gnosticism in Christianity and trying to understand it. But what you wrote about in the scholasticism article seems to suggest that the same trend goes much deeper than I realized. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can talk about it for a few minutes. Yeah. Well, the um, scholasticism's root is, um, well, most people would say that um, uh, most uh, scholars would recognize that uh, uh, scholasticism reaches its apogee with Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. And uh, the, the, the stated goal of, of Aquinas was to interpret Aristotle for the church mm -hmm. and to, uh, to take over the insights of Greek philosophy, um, especially the form-matter scheme in Aristotle's thinking, and then somehow Christianize it. And baptize it. And baptize it as Christian, and that gave us the nature-grace divide. And interestingly, there is a something of a connection there with, with uh, a Gnostic um, motif you know, and development, because if you end up with a two-story view of reality, an upper story and a lower story, and this upper story is a more mystical area of, that's uh, in the realm of ideas, forms, um, uh, knowledge, a kind of uh, intellectual knowledge and insight into a different realm. Um, it's easy to see how that can become quite esoteric yep. and mystical. And in Roman Catholicism, of course, you have that strong mystical element. Um, and the, the, there's a, you start to see a division really between creation and uh, redemption. Mm -hmm. They become sort of different domains of, 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 of reality. And, um, you then privilege a certain science, theology, yep. um, and a certain and, and other disciplines are somehow lesser or lower, and so there is a an interesting um, connection between. I mean, that's why, of course, Gnosticism, you know, is right back there in the ancient Greco-Roman world, and it was one of the first problems that the church was um, had to grapple with, had to yeah. had to had to deal with. Um, that there was a sort of secret upper level. A superior knowledge to that given to us in the Word of God, um, and it stems from a, a, a dualistic vision of reality. And so, of course, I'm not suggesting that Scala that uh, Thomas Aquinas was a was a Gnostic, right? Right. Um, but there are unintended consequences of his attempt to synthesize Christianity with with Aristotle, mm -hmm. um, and and what came out of that was this nature grace distinction. Um, that had all kinds then of all kinds of different consequences and, and all kinds of movements that, uh, that branched out of it and from it. Mm -hmm. And so in your talk today, it seemed like you tried to bring that a little bit down to earth for the people to understand in the audience that here's how this shows up in our everyday lives as Christians and here's how we can re-begin thinking about our lives knowing that this distinction is false. Yeah. Yes, I'm, I hope I, I, I managed to bring it down. Sometimes I'm not always sure that I've done it successfully. <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> um, uh, but um, I, I, yeah, I did my best to say, look, you know, um, the way in which this scholastic uh, vision worked itself out in the way we think about the church right. and the state and culture um, is that we tend to think as Christians today that we're, we're trapped between, a, uh, we're stuck with a choice between a, an ecclesiastical vision of culture, of Christendom, where the church itself in the upper story of grace is having to try and in order to Christianize culture, it needs to churchify reality yeah. by bringing the institutional offices of the church to bear on every area of life. Um, and therefore we need some form of establishment and, and, and so on. Um, that the, the, uh, the, the, what we might call an ecclesiocracy almost. Right. And of course that is, uh, um, 
perhaps most clearly seen for us in the idea of the papal theocracy of the medieval period. But even today, you know, the the Pope is the absolute monarch of the of, of the Vatican city states, the smallest yeah. state in the in in the world. We either think there's a kind of a choice between going back to this older model. If as soon as you talk about the Lordship of Christ and Christianity and culture, people think, well, are you calling for a return to the religious persecution and religious wars right. of that period? Or then the only other alternative people tend to think is we must accept the uh, the radical secularization of reality, which is the corollary of the ecclesiasticization of the faith. By the right. way, when you when you ecclesiasticize the Bible and you you make it the Bible a church book and it's only for the church, and the church is the kingdom and somehow conflate church and kingdom together, then you actually call forth the secularization of the world. Right, and so. We, the 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 other sort of direction is people think if we don't um, embrace an ecclesiastical culture, then we must embrace a secular, a radically secularized culture where the place of Jesus is relativized in culture and his lordship is relativized. Both make the mistake of 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 associating the kingdom of God directly with and conflating it with the ecclesia, the church institute. So, basileia, kingdom, ecclesia, church are sort of seen as coalescing rather than being involved in each other, but never collapsing into one another. So that we're not actually stuck with a choice between the old ecclesiastical culture or radical secularization, because we can see an inner reformation of mm. education, the state, um, uh, family life, and so forth, in terms of their own spheres. We don't need to um, treat uh, these other areas of life as though they're lesser parts of the state or lesser parts of the church. All these spheres are under Christ and his kingdom is over all these different areas of life is not restricted to the church institute. So that's the way I was trying to land today in the lecture, this discussion about scholasticism in, in, in the real life of the church as we talk about the kingdom of God. What is the meaning of the kingdom of God? And how do we think about not a two-story dualistic view of reality inherited from the Greeks, but how do we think of all of creation as Christ's domain over which he says, this is mine, church, state, uh, education, um, medicine, uh, the arts, every area of life under his lordship, and neither one needing to swallow the other in a parts-to-whole relationship as though the family and the church are just merely lesser parts of the state. It seems like this lines up pretty well with post-millennial philosophy because it's like, no, we need to enter into the institutions so we don't have a church, an ecclesia, coming to control everything from the top down. Mm -hmm. We need to just interpenetrate and allow Christ to come into us so that we manifest it through the institutions rather than having a church come and do it like in the medieval days. Yeah, yeah. there's certainly a, um, there's a way in which we can see the importance of a, an eschatology of hope mm -hmm. in all of that, where if Christ, if Christ is reigning not just over a narrowly defined redemptive area of life up here, a sort of a grace institution called the church, but is in fact Lord and King and reigning over all of life and is reconciling all things to himself, that implies then hope not just for the church, but hope for the family, mm -hmm. hope for law, hope for politics, hope, hope for, for medicine. medicine, hope for sport, hope for all these different <laughs> areas of life because Christ is ruling and reigning over all of these spheres of life, not just merely the church institute as an institution of grace, as though the kingdom is restricted there. So yeah, it does imply a, a kind of an eschatology of hope, an eschatology of transformation, uh, where Christ's lordship can now be applied in all of these different areas. And that is not through the, um, uh, the domineering uh, offices of the church institute, but through the Christian in each area of life. The church has its important role, uh, in in preaching the word, administering the sacraments, exercising church discipline, um, and it's where we're trained and equipped and sent out then on mission in terms of the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. Is this going to be what your sermon's about tomorrow at Apologia? <laughs> uh, um, it certainly is going to be related to that. I'm going to be I'm going to be I'm going to be talking about. Um, I won't give it all away, but I'm going to be talking about the calling of um, of Moses and the, the mission that he was sent on by the Lord in terms of the kingdom of God and uh, some of the implications um, of that. So yes, it'll be a bit of a, a bit of a sort of um, down to earth follow-up from what I was talking about today. So I'll try and land the plane even a bit more tomorrow. Yeah, Excellent. I look forward yep. to it. Well, where would you like to send people to the Ezra Institute, to YouTube? Or? Sure. Well, um, people can uh, find out much more about the Ezra Institute at ezrainstitute.com online. And um, they can, uh, uh, 
track us uh, and uh, follow us with our podcast, uh, the Podcast for Cultural Reformation, wherever they get their podcasts. Um, they can find uh, the Ezra Institute's Podcast for Cultural Reformation and join us there if they want to learn more about what it means to apply the Lordship of Christ to every, every area of life. And they can, of course, follow Ezra or uh, on Facebook and Twitter or myself on Twitter at Dr. Joe Boot. Thank you very much, Dr. Boot. I really appreciate Great. Thanks it. for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.